I invite you all to open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to be continuing on in our series in the life of Abraham. And we find ourselves in a very important chapter in not just the book of Genesis, but in the whole Bible. So turn with me, Genesis chapter 21. Uh, We'll read this text from beginning to end, and then we'll dig in and see what the Lord would have for us. Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears me will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water of the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me, here by God, that you will not deal falsely with me, or with my descendants, or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me. And with the land where you have sojourned, and Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. 
Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard about it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Amen. Thus reads the word of the Lord. We live in a world that is full of broken promises. A world full of broken promises. We see that every day of our lives. We see that uh, expressed in many different ways. One example of this is that in the United States alone, so not the world, but just in the United States, every year, there are around 876,000 divorces, just in the United States alone. 860,000 marriages ending. means that in one day, 2,400 marriages are separated. That comes out to about one marriage every 36 seconds. Every 36 seconds, vows that were made are broken. And the results of that are tragic. Some of you have experienced that firsthand. We live in a world of broken promises. Uh, If you were to buy a house today, you would find that you'd have to fill out somewhere around 200 pages worth of paperwork. Uh, And that's just for the purchase contract. Once you add insurance and homeowners association paperwork and all that, you're going to looking at several hundred pages of documents. And why is that? Why so much paperwork? It's because we live in a world full of broken promises. It's because that's how many pages it takes to promise that actually I will pay for this house. And of course, when you fill out that paperwork, it doesn't guarantee that you're actually going to keep the promise. It just establishes that the promise has been made. Another example, some of you I know are thinking about going to law school when you finish your undergrad. And that's a big deal. That's not something that you can just, uh, it's not a little three-hour course that you can take online. It's going to take up three years of your life, three years of intense study. And the reason is because, again, we live in a world that is full of broken promises. Our entire legal system that people study so intently is built around the reality that people break promises. We live in a world of broken promises. And what we're going to see tonight in Genesis chapter 21 is exactly the opposite of that. What we'll see in Genesis 21 is that God is absolutely faithful to his promises. This God who has made a covenant with Abraham is a faithful God and he always keeps his promises. As we dig into Genesis chapter 21 tonight, I really think that 
it's important that we uh, consider the context. And I think we need to take a few minutes to make sure that we situate this passage in its context, not just in the life of Abraham that we've been studying with Austin for all these weeks, but also the biblical context. Where do we find this passage in the flow of the story that began in Genesis chapter one and moves all the way forward? So let's take a few minutes and recap because the context of this passage is really everything. What we see here is just a passage that comes to us rich with hope and expectations. So if you remember in Genesis chapter 12, when we started this study with Austin, we began this study with a promise. God makes a promise to Abraham. We read in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And all of the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. So this promise to this one chosen man is going to run like a thread. We've been seeing it a little bit every week as we've been studying with Austin. It runs like a thread throughout the story of Abraham and actually throughout the whole Bible. But what we're actually seeing as we continue to read through scripture is that this promise is really kind of a, a narrowing, sort of a honing in of an earlier promise that God made in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15. He promises that the woman will bear a seed, she will bear a child who will bruise the head of the serpent who has tempted Adam and Eve to sin, who has brought sin into the world. So when we get to Abraham's life, we see that this promise has been honed in to this one family. So no longer is it just the whole world, everyone who is descended from Eve, but now this one person, this one man, we know that this, the promised Messiah will come from his line. So he makes this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he calls him to have faith in the promise. So God again reiterates his promise in chapter 15, and this time God makes clear that this promise is a promise that he himself will keep through this covenantal ceremony, God promises that this is an unconditional covenant, which is to say that I will keep this covenant regardless of whatever you might bring to it. This is an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant. And throughout this whole narrative, we see Abraham's faith is spotty. It's coming and going, it ebbs and flows. There's high points and there's low points, uh, but there's a lot of low points. And the lowest point of this whole story is in Genesis chapter 16, when Abraham and Sarah decide that they're going to help God out. And Abraham sleeps with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, and she becomes pregnant, and she has this son, Ishmael. But God is clear that Ishmael is not the promised son. This is not the seed through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So again, chapter 17, God institutes the sign of circumcision. This is this covenant sign to remind Abraham of the promise that he's made. He reiterates the promise and he again reiterates that the child is going to come through Sarah. This old woman well past the age of being able to have kids. And in chapter 18, God comes, or chapter 17, God tells this to Abraham and Abraham responds, by laughing. He essentially laughs in God's face at this promise. And in chapter 18, God comes to Abraham and he tells him that 
this chosen child, this heir, is going to come through Sarah and it's going to happen next year. And Sarah responds to that also with laughter. So again, we see the faith of Abraham and Sarah just ebbing and flowing, coming and going. We come to chapter 19 and we find one of the most grim and dark chapters in the whole Bible. Depravity and evil everywhere, including in Abraham's own family. And we might hope that this would actually strengthen Abraham's faith in the promise, that this might compel him even more to hope in God as he sees that there is no hope in front of him. There's no hope in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's no hope even in his own family. We would hope that he would cling even more closely to the promise of God. And instead, in chapter 20, we see his faith falter again for a second time in exactly the same way He fails to trust in God. He lies about Sarah, his wife. He says, this is my sister. And he does that because he fears either for his life or for Sarah's life, even though he shouldn't have feared because God has promised that they will produce a descendant. It would be hard to do that if one of them or both of them were dead. So he distrusts in the promise of God and he lies. And this is the context that we find Genesis 21 situated in, this impossible promise, this inconsistent faith, and this promise of a seed, an offspring upon whom rests the hope of not just Abraham and Sarah, but of the whole world post the fall, post Genesis 3. As we come to chapter 21, what Abraham and Sarah needed more than anything else is a God who keeps his promises. Adam and Eve in the garden, or than anything else, what they needed was a God who would be faithful to keep his promise, to give them a descendant who would bruise the head of the serpent. Actually, what everyone who has ever lived after that event, after the fall, has needed more than anything is a God who keeps his promises. That's exactly what we're going to find in this text. Verses 1 to 7, what we're going to see is God's covenant faithfulness. God's covenant faithfulness. So in a world of broken promises, in a world whose only hope lies in God's ability to keep his promise made to Adam and Eve and made to Abraham and Sarah, in this world, we come to Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, and we read, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. God has kept his promise. Notice how clearly the author of Genesis wants to emphasize this. This is not just another birth. This is not just another baby It says in verse 1, God visited Sarah. When we read of Ishmael's birth and his origin in chapter 16, verse 4, we would read, And he, this being Abraham, he went into Hagar and she conceived. But in chapter 21, what we read is a work of God. Chapter 21 says, The Lord visited Sarah and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. So this is not a regular baby. This is a miraculous event. 
This baby has arrived to Abraham and Sarah by means of a a miraculous work of God. God has acted. God has done this. And when you think about that term miracle, that's a a word that we uh, use pretty loosely. So when the United States Olympic hockey team defeated the Soviet Union in 1980, as unexpected as that was, that actually was not a miracle. Uh, we, we, think, we, we have this term, you know, we talk about the miracle of modern medicine, and as amazing as modern medicine is, and as crazy as it is to think about, especially if you were alive 100 years ago, you couldn't even fathom this, but in a technical sense, that's not actually a miracle. See, God is sovereign over the natural order, so in one sense, God is just as much responsible for Ishmael's birth as he is for Isaac's birth. But God chooses at certain points in history to act outside of the natural order. And we call that a miracle. A miracle is the work of God, not through the normal means that he has instituted, but there are certain times, certain places in the biblical story where God chooses to act in supernatural ways. So for example, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the virgin conception of Christ, the healing ministry of Jesus. These are miraculous events that God does, and he does it to get our attention, to wake us up and point to an event and say, this is important. This is a work of God. You need to look at this and see what is God doing here? Why did God do this? What is he pointing us to? What is he directing our attention to? And this is one of those events. But we see here, God did to Sarah as he had promised. God visited Sarah. This is a miracle. This is a special event. These are special circumstances. And he does it to show us that this is significant. Notice again how clearly the author wants to emphasize that God has kept his promise. So this baby is significant because this is a miracle and he's significant because this was promised for a long time. As he had said, as he had promised, which God had spoken to him, this is a miraculous child. And this is a child who has come about exactly how God has promised. Verse four, it says that Abraham was 100 years old when this child was born to him. So if you remember back to chapter 12, When God initially makes the promise to Abraham, he was 75 years old. So he waited 25 years. That's a long time. A lot can change in 25 years. I don't like waiting for anything for any amount of time. I don't like waiting for my phone to load. 25 years is a long time. And it's a long time to wait for something that is physically impossible. Imagine being in Abraham's Shoes. If you've ever struggled to wait for something, imagine trying to wait 25 years for something that there is zero precedent about. Imagine waiting 25 years for something that is not humanly possible. This was obviously long before the era of science. Abraham did not know the intricacies of human biology, but he knew that women in their 60s or 70s or 80s did not give birth to children. This is a long time to wait for something that has never happened before. This is faith. This is the kind of faith that Abraham 
was called to. So we notice that they had faith in the promise, but then they continued to express their faith through obedience. Uh, verse 4, it says that Abraham circumcised Isaac. So he obeys God. He seals him with this covenant seal, the symbol of the covenant. Verse 3, they name Isaac. And this was something that God had commanded them to do in verse 17, to name him Isaac. And his name means he will laugh, which is interesting. Remember, God made this promise to Abraham and Abraham laughed. And then Abraham has this conversation with God about the promise and then Sarah laughs. And in verse 6, we find a different kind of laughter. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. This is not laughter of derision like what we saw earlier. This is laughter of joy. This is a joyous time. This is just a good time. God has been faithful to his promise. God is good. And he has expressed that to them through fulfilling this promise of the son. This is a good time. And you realize that God continues to fulfill this promise even today. Because remember, this promise was not just for Abraham, but it was a promise that in Abraham's seed, every family on the earth would be blessed, which means this very day, God is still acting on his promise. At Grace Community Church, we have over 100 missionaries, just at Grace Church alone, that we are sending out. And every time we send out a new missionary, this is an example of God making good on his promise to Abraham that through this seed, through Isaac, every family on the earth would be blessed. As we gather here tonight in this room at UCLA, God is making good on his promise to bless every family in the world through Isaac. As we are gathered here at UCLA, a group of mostly non-Jewish people, God is making good on his promise. You, you see the faithfulness of God to Abraham, that here we are thousands of years later and God is still making good on his promise. So GOC, just no matter where you are in your faith, if you are not a believer, if you are a believer, if you are a new believer, if you are a struggling believer, as we read this text, I think that there is nothing more important than for you to know that God is absolutely faithful. That if God was faithful to Abraham to bring about this miraculous son, that God is absolutely faithful today to you. And you can trust that. God has made a promise and God will keep that promise. If God has made a promise, he will keep that promise. I would just ask, how would your life be different if you absolutely understood and believed that truth? If you understood that God is always absolutely faithful to his promises, how much peace might that bring you? How much joy might you experience if you could trust always and know always that God is faithful to his promises? Romans 8 Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Guys, do you see that 
a promise like this, that all things work together for good for those who are, co- who are called according to God's purpose, that is a promise that we can bank on. If God delivered Abraham a son by this miraculous means, when we read something like this, we can know that the odds of God fulfilling that promise are 100%. God is 100% likely to fulfill that promise. Revelation chapter 21, verse four, we see this scene at the end of the Bible, at the end of time, and we read, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Guys, when you read that in your Bible, this amazing scene, no more death, mourning, sadness, sickness, All of that is a relic. It is a memory of a distant path. Distant past. You know that there is a 100% chance that that will come about. God is absolutely faithful. In a world of unfaithfulness, in a world of broken promises, you can know with 100% certainty that God will fulfill his promise. God will make good on his promises. So verses 1 to 7, we see God's covenant faithfulness. And in verses 8 to 21, we'll see God's common grace. God's common grace. So verses 1 to 7, we have this amazingly joyous scene. Abraham and Sarah laughing, naming their son, he laughs. This joyous scene, but it doesn't last. The joy comes to an end. We read in verses 8 and 9, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And Ishmael's laughter is not the kind of joyous laughter that we were reading about in these earlier verses. This is a a word that kind of plays off of Isaac's name. It's a, a laughter that is not that kind of laughter. It's a laughter of mockery. So he's back there mocking and laughing. And as we would expect, Sarah does not like this. And specifically, she doesn't like it because she's concerned that as these two children grow up, Ishmael is going to become a threat to Isaac's inheritance. See, in the ancient Near East context that we're reading about, the oldest son, no matter who his mother was, the oldest son received a double portion of the inheritance. So it was a really privileged place to be the oldest son in any family. And Sarah knew this. She didn't want Isaac to have to give up his inheritance. This promised inheritance, she would not have Ishmael endanger it. So starting in verse 10, we read this. She said, She said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. 
So what we see here is a kind of a fork in the road. We have two sons. We have one born miraculously, and we have one born naturally. We have one who's born of a promise, and we have one who is born of sin. We have one who's born of faith, and we have one who is born of doubt. And in these four verses, we see their paths diverge. We see the separation forming. This is a passage, these verses in particular, that New Testament authors pick up on. Uh, we see Paul use it as kind of an illustration, an allegory in Galatians chapter 4 to talk about the difference of being born in slavery and being born in freedom, the freedom that we have in the new covenant. Uh, we see Paul talk about it a lot in Romans. He points to it as an example of God's election, which is to say that there are some who God has chosen and there are some who God has passed over. And he uses these two people as an illustration of that. So we see this parting because God has been clear throughout this whole narrative, going back to Genesis 12, that Isaac is the child of promise, that this child of promise would come about by faith, that it would demand faith of Abraham and Sarah to receive this child. So again, Abraham obeys God. And these paths split. And Ishmael sort of exits the scene. Even the language in this passage is meant to demonstrate that. So if you notice, Ishmael's name is actually never mentioned throughout this whole chapter. He's referred to as the boy or the lad or the son of the slave woman. And Isaac's name is mentioned over and over. This is a passage about Isaac. This is about God's covenant people. And what's happening here is that the author is making very clear that Ishmael is not the covenant child. This is not the child that Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for for all these years. And it's exactly that that makes these next verses so striking. In verse 15, Hagar finds herself in a hopeless situation. Verses 15 and 16, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, where she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. It doesn't get any more desperate than this. Put yourself in Hagar's shoes here. She is the mother of this child. This is not the covenant child, but this is a child. This is her child. This is her son. At this point, he would have been a teenager, at least 17, somewhere around there. And here they are in the wilderness, no food, no water, and they're dying. And they get to a point where she understands that he's going to die first, so she puts him under this bush and she leaves so she can get enough distance where she doesn't have to hear her son dying. doesn't have to hear her son dying of starvation and thirst. She's desperate. And in her desperation, God meets her. Look at verses 17, 21. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand. 
for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and saw a well of water. He saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. God has been faithful to Hagar. Remember, Abraham and Sarah aren't the only ones that God has made a promise to. If you actually turn back to Genesis chapter 16, and if you look with me at verses 7 to 13, we read this, the angel of the Lord found her, this is Hagar, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. And Hagar was right. When we get to verse 21, we see that, Yet again, God has done exactly as he promised. God is faithful to keep his covenant to Abraham and Sarah, his covenant people. But God is also faithful to keep his promise to Hagar. Again, Hagar and Ishmael were not part of the covenant. They were not part of God's plan to bless all the families of the earth. Ishmael was born in a moment of doubt and unbelief and sin. That's the only reason why these two people have entered this scene, why they're even in the biblical narrative. And yet, God is faithful and gracious to them. He's faithful to keep the promise that he made to Hagar. This is what theologians like to call common grace. Just to say that there is a particular kind of grace that God has to his people, to his family. For example, saving grace, the saving knowledge of Christ. That is a kind of grace that is only for people who have trusted in Christ and have trusted in the gospel. But there is a kind of general grace that God gives undiscriminately to anyone everywhere. In other words, no matter how sinful anyone is, no matter if they're in the family of God or not in the family of God, there is a kind of grace that God has for them. So Matthew chapter five, Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So even the most wicked people in this world enjoy God's grace, God's stance toward the world, his disposition toward the world, even toward sinners, is one of mercy. 
And I think as we read Genesis 21, there's a lesson here for us. We need to know that we serve a God who has common grace. We serve a God who is gracious to his covenant people like Abraham and Sarah, but he's also gracious to those who are definitively outside of his covenant, like Hagar and Ishmael. And I think that for you guys in particular, in this season of life, it's probably never been more important for you to to have something of a doctrine of common grace, which is to say that, yeah, you have a kind of grace, a kind of love for your family in Christ that is particular. Galatians says, do good to all people, especially those in the household of faith. You're at evening service uh, this Sunday. We heard a great sermon on that. So there's a kind of love that we have for our family, but there is also a general kind of love, a general kind of grace that we have for everyone. And I think for you all, as you find yourselves in a season of life where you're surrounded by thousands of people who are not believers, it's important for us to know what we see here in this text, which is that our disposition toward them should be one of grace and of love and of goodness. Again, if you think of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says it rains on the just and the unjust, but first he says, love your enemies. And then he says, because or so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying that God has a kind of general grace toward all people. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. Therefore, love your enemies. And in so doing, you are emulating your father and showing yourself to be his son. Common grace. So this profound expression of common grace really is fitting in this chapter. We think about this covenant again, that in this family, every family on the earth will be blessed. We're just reminded that God's covenant with Abraham has an outward trajectory to it. That God's grace to this one family is meant to spill over, to overflow to all the families of the earth. And it just makes sense that in this chapter, we see again a kind of grace that is spilling over, a kind of grace that is overflowing, a kind of grace that is not exclusive to God's covenant people, but that just flows over to those who find themselves outside of God's covenant. And then we come to verses 22 to 34. In this amazing chapter about God's grace and God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to fulfill these cosmic promises that stretch back to Genesis and move all the way forward to Revelation, we come to this strange little episode about this border dispute, this dispute over a well. And, uh, you know, scholars have scratched their heads over this. I've been reading commentaries all week. They just look at this text and they kind of ponder it and say, this, is, this just seems so strange. It's so disjointed. It doesn't seem fitting here. Uh, so much so that some scholars who have a low view of scripture have just tossed it out and said, this is weird. It doesn't belong here. It's obviously some later edition. Some editor came along 700 years later and put this in. But actually, when you really sit with this text, you see that the kind of disjointed and unexpected nature of this story is exactly where its significance lies. So we see this character, Abimelech. We've seen him before. If you remember back to chapter 20, 
Abraham lied to him. Abimelech was the king of Gerar, and while Abraham is sojourning through there, he lies to him. He says, this is Sarah, my sister, and that's how this whole episode begins. And he reappears now to talk business with Abraham. So apparently, evidently, Abraham had built this well at some point, and Abimelech's men had seized it, and he wants to make a deal with Abraham. He says in verse 22, God is with you in all that you do. Yeah, apparently. It could be that Abimelech had heard that Abraham's 90-year-old wife had given birth to a son. Apparently, God is with him. Apparently, God has a special presence with this person. So he, he sees that and he says, uh, it is apparent that God is with you. And he wants to make a deal with him. He wants to make sure that he's on Abraham's good side. So Abimelech is wealthy and powerful and he sees Abraham growing in wealth and power and he he says, don't deal harshly with me. He says, remember when you sojourned in my land and I was good to you? Well, remember that. Be good to me as I sojourn in your land. So Abraham agrees, but there's a condition. He says, there's a well that I've built. Your men have seized it. I would like that well back. So they make a covenant. Abraham gives him sheep and oxen and lambs. And in return, Abimelech gives him the well. And that's it. That's the whole story. So why is it here? Again, in this amazing chapter of scripture, why end this amazing cosmic chapter with this weird little story about a well? If you think about the book of Genesis for a minute, if you think about all the time, just all the years that this book covers, and then how few pages it occupies in our Bible, we realize yeah, that everything in this book is very strategically there. Of all the things that Moses, the author, could have written, he obviously had a reason for including this in a book that covers probably thousands of years. So why is it here? Well, the first reason is that this is just an example of God's timely provision. If you've ever been, I think many of you can relate to a time when you were just down and discouraged, and someone just gave you a word of encouragement. And it might not have been anything special. It could be something that you've heard dozens of times before. But he just said the exact right thing at the exact right time. And it was so meaningful. And that's kind of what we see here. This was just the right thing at the right time. It was just timely. So God has fulfilled this promise, and he's given Abraham a son. One thing about having children is, as it turns out, children require water. So God provides this well. God has given him this son, and he has provided the means by which he'll be sustained. But why is it here? Why in this chapter? See, this, this event that's so mundane, it seems so secular. You know, like, not in a bad way, but it's just... It doesn't have anything to do with God's covenants, with the law, with scripture. It just seems so strange. It seems so ordinary. But again, that's exactly the point. Uh, lastly, the third thing we're going to see real quickly is God's providential provision. God's covenant faithfulness, God's common grace, and God's providential provision. See, in the midst of these cosmic realities and these miraculous events, God, in his wisdom, determines to express his faithfulness to Abraham 
or just a regular everyday event, or just a regular ordinary situation. Isaac was conceived through supernatural means and God is now determined to sustain him through natural means, through a well. But this is no less the grace and faithfulness of God. See, Isaac's miraculous birth and this little well in the middle of the wilderness, this is no less God expressing his faithfulness to his covenant person. God is sovereign over the supernatural, but God is also sovereign over the natural. God is sovereign over the sacred and he is sovereign over the secular. God is sovereign over extraordinary circumstances and he is sovereign over just the ordinary, everyday details of life. And look how Abraham responds. Verse 33, Abraham planted, planted a Tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The everlasting God, that's one word in the Hebrew. This is the only place in the whole Old Testament where this appears. And it's interesting that, again, in this chapter, we find this amazing act of worship to this everlasting God after this treaty to secure a well. Not after this amazing promise is fulfilled, but after Abraham attains a source of water. And again, I think there's a lesson there for us because what we see from Abraham was that he had a lens. He had a way of viewing the world by which he could worship God. He could be compelled to worship not just through God's extraordinary, miraculous events, but he could see something like a well and be compelled to worship God. This is what we call providence. Providence is just a precious gift that we enjoy as believers. It means we can look at life through a different lens. It means we can go through life knowing that the events of our lives, even the regular everyday events of our lives, have been orchestrated by a good father. Therefore, even the regular everyday events in life are significant. As Christians, we get to see life through a different dimension. Just like Abraham was able to see this event as an act of God, as an act of God's providential faithfulness. We too get to see everyday, regular, ordinary events in our lives as acts of God. Imagine being blind, being colorblind your whole life and then getting a, a pair of glasses that enables you to see color for the first time. That's kind of what it's like to see life through the lens of the providence of God. So just an example of that, you could graduate from UCLA and you could send out applications and you could get into your dream school for grad school. And you could have a close friend who's not a believer and they could send out their applications and they could get into the same dream school. And that's great. So your friend has gotten into your dream, her dream school, his or her dream school. But for you, not only did you get into your dream school, but you have seen a faithful God providentially show his kindness to you. That's the kind of lens that we get to see the world with when we see as Abraham saw. And the reverse could be true as well. You might not get into your dream school and your friend might not get into your dream school. And for your friend, they may be devastated. 
And for you, you might feel devastated, but you can also remember that this regular everyday event is God expressing his faithfulness to you, keeping his promise. So understand God's providence is to see life more fully, to see life in more than one dimension as Abraham saw it. And hopefully, like Abraham, to be provoked to worship God. Let's pray.